Well, welcome everyone. This is Ben and Cynthia Bailey as we discuss the promised one, our study on Jesus. <laughs> what are you doing over there? <laughs> that, that's that was cheering for Ben and Cynthia Bailey. We uh, well, guess I, you got some new effects on the soundboard this week. I got some new buttons to play with sound effects. So you want me to? Can, so can I can I show you something? What they're for? Go for so, it. All right. So here's. Uh, yeah. For all your jokes. That's for all my jokes that don't land. This is for all, this is my backup for when you're not laughing and you should. Oh, I need that one when I sing on Sundays, just to play in my, in my in-ears. People cheering for you? <laughs> Are you? All right, so here's yep. another one for your yep. jokes. Yep, that's how I can set them up. And then uh, let's see what, yep. That's for when I ask questions and you have that look for like, <laughs> what in the world are you actually talking about? I have no idea what that is. And then um, that's a little. Oh, you know, you should preface that every time I speak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I was thinking that was a little princess magic for our girls. <laughs> and that when we make the magical turn to get to Christ in the Old oh, Testament, we can do that. But if you would like the princess fairy things. <laughs> so let's get back to the Bible study. So this week we're discussing the Tower of Babel from Genesis 10 through the beginning of 12. So Ben, can you recap for us or summarize what we're going to be discussing today? Yeah, so we're in Genesis 10 and 11. And so the first step when you start to engage with the text is you want to you want to read through it and want to start trying to put the pieces of the structure together start f trying to figure out all right how does this all fit together and genesis 1 through 11 is one kind of large block so we're coming to the end of the first major block that is illustrating how everyone in the world stands in relation to god who's the king who's the creator and so this is coming to the end of the first major movement and um Verses 10 or chapter 10 and 11, the first part of 11. So uh, 10 through 11, verse 9 is one kind of unified story. So it's a story that's set up with here we go again, a really long genealogy mm -hmm. and then a short narrative story. So you get almost 32 verses of genealogy and then only like six or seven or eight, nine verses of actual. Um, story. So chapter 10 is actually what's called the table of nations. And so as you're reading through that, it's a couple important things to note. when you're reading through or just skimming through the genealogies, you want to look and try and key in on does anybody get extended comments? So does the, the writer unpack anybody's story? And so it's important to note those. And in this section, there's two of them. And then this is called the table of nations because it's giving a, a, a theological or stylized image of the whole world. There's uh, 70 nations, and so that number is significant. Um, one of the things you're constantly going to be asking questions when you're reading is why is why is the author telling us this? Why is God telling us these things? And numbers are significant. Um, the number 70, you know, it's, uh, you think seven for creation, new creation, completion, mm -hmm. fullness, and then the number 10 uh, is symbolic for completion, and so you, you want to make that note. There's, there'll be a parallel at the end of Genesis with the 70 sons of Jacob coming into Egypt and then other parallels all throughout the Bible um, when Jesus sends out his 70 and in Revelation, the 70 is, is significant. And one of the things that's important is because it's letting us know that Israel's God, this God is not just a tribal deity. He's not just the deity of, of Abraham's family. Mm -hmm. he's, he's the God of heaven and earth, the whole mm -hmm. earth. 
So you want to know that. Now, did you notice when you're reading through chapter 10, there, there are two people who get an extended comment. So you'll want to kind of pause and say, hmm, all right, what does it tell us about them and why? And so the first one is in verse 8, and it's Nimrod. <laughs> so, <laughs> why are you laughing at his? Oh, I just can't read that name without laughing. So <laughs> did Nimrod ever make your top 10 baby names? I think that's my favorite like derogatory name that people can use. So funny. Well, I wonder how it became derogatory because you read in Genesis 10, he's a pretty bad dude. He's a mighty man of old who was a great hunter and was actually the founder of Babylon and Nineveh. And uh, historically speaking, he was this terror of a man who was this great warrior king. Um, and then, then not an Imrod, actually. <laughs> no. And then the next person you get mentioned in verse 25 is Peleg. And he, and so the reason why that's important is because the story we're going to read with the Tower of Babel, this is not just like some ambitious building project that they tackle for a weekend. Nimrod starts it, and then you have generation after generation, and then the dispersion, they're not even finished, and the dispersion happens with Peleg in verse 25. So this is a intense, multi-generational project. Mm-hmm. So that's setting some of the, some of the, the stage. So another thing I was struck by in chapter 10 of the generational accounts was the repetition of spreading out and dispersing. So that is mentioned three times throughout this passage. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, and that's a great thing to try and key in on. You're you're constantly asking questions, all right, what themes, what things are being re- repeated? Where have I heard that? Key words. So that's really important to note. So that's going to be one of the keys. They're, they're not dispersing. They're not spreading. Mm-hmm. From Genesis chapter 9, they've been commanded to spread, and they're, they're not. And you also want to be listening for parallels or echoes. One of the fascinating things about when we read chapter 11, 1 through um, 9, is the parallels between this and Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and how he builds a city. And so in Genesis 4 and in 11, they both uh, have to move out east. They both build a city. They both have this um, proud use of technology they both are forced to migrate at, at the end of it. And there's these clear textual echoes and parallels. All right. So when we look at the actual story of Babel, um, it's got a pretty simple structure that you can see. Uh, verses one through four, in essence, are the words of the people. Verse five is the center. Another thing you want to do when you're reading the Bible is often the biblical writers will put their key point structurally at the center mm. of the passage. So you want to go... Uh, that's that's the center. And verse 5 is the center, the key piece. And it's, it's, and the Lord came down to see the tower, which the children of man had made, had built. So the Lord coming down is the, the key verse. And then verses 6 through 9 unpack the words of God. So you almost have kind of this, this back and forth. The first part is the words of man and their ambition. What are they going to make and build? And then the words of God and which, mm-hmm. which word is going to, to win out in the end. So how about let's read, because it's pretty short, so we can read it this time. Mm-hmm. So how about you read verse um, chapter 11, verse 1 through 4, and these are the words of the people. And then I'll pick up verse 5 and then go 6 through 9 and read the words of God. Okay. Okay, Genesis 11, 1 through 4. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. 
and they had brick for stone and butamen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there all over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them all over the face of the earth. So the first, so let's kind of take a deep dive now into the text once we got the basic structure. You know, the first, you know, first two verses set the scene, mm-hmm. and then the last two verses, if you notice, they summarize the scene. Mm-hmm. And then in verses three and four, you have what the people say. And this really gets at the heart of, all right, what... What is the actual sin of Babel? What's, what's the sin? Because this is coming at the culmination of Genesis 1 through 9, which is really showing us the digression of humanity. So you almost have these continual great fall events, these catastrophes. So you have um, Adam and Eve transgress the boundaries that God's placed. And then the sons of God that we saw last week in Genesis chapter 6, they're transgressing the boundaries of marriage. And then you have the great flood. And then this is almost like the third story um, that illustrates the great degradation of humanity. Like we're seeing these continual falls, this continue the spiraling downward. And, you know, one of the first questions is, all right, well, what makes this so bad? To me, though, it's kind of a hard thing to pinpoint on the surface level, it kind of looks like they're building a tower to worship God in heaven. And so it could strike someone as, well, isn't this a good thing? Yeah. And, you know, they're they're coming together. They're unified. They're building a city. I mean, these are definitely things. I mean, they're seeking to be this great and unified people with this direct connection to heaven. And you're like, man, isn't that a good thing? I think that is one of the keys of this story is that, in essence, the reality that they sought wasn't wrong, but the way they sought it and the reasons they were seeking it is wrong. Mm. So they are seeking to be this great and unified people with a direct connection to heaven, and that's a reality and a gift that only God gives, and he gives through Christ. Mm-hmm. And But they're going about that through the way of human ambition and self-exaltation. Mm. So let's think about those two things. I think you're really right to connect this to worship because this is uh, what they're building. Tower is really not the best concept. So when we think of tower, I mean, like our little boys, every time they dump out the Legos all over the floor, they the only thing they know how to build is towers, and they just <laughs> stack it up, and it's a tower. And that's not really tower. It's, this is better to think of as temple. Mm-hmm. So temple and one of the key um, themes all throughout the Bible is that the, the, we encounter the Lord on a mountain, and he comes to us on a mountain. The, mountain is, the mountains are the place where heaven and earth touch. And here they're, they're making their own mountain. They're going, to, they're going to build their own mountain so that they can reach up to God. And it's important to note the connections in, all, in a number of these sins in Genesis 1 through 11 with worship. 
So like mm-hmm. Cain and Abel, it was uh, worship wars. Mm-hmm. It was over a sacrifice. What is an acceptable sacrifice of worship to God and what is not? Mm-hmm. So there's things that are acceptable and there are things that are not. In one sense, this is, the, this is a church building project where they're building this giant temple where they're going to, to worship. So part of the logic, in essence, is, all right, we'll, all right, God, we'll meet you halfway. You dwell in heaven. We dwell on earth. Um, but we'll decide how we can reach up to you. They're not waiting for God to come down like he does at Mount Sinai. They're not waiting for the mountain of God to come down and him reveal salvation by grace. They're trying to save themselves. This is a self-salvation project. They're trying to get to heaven by themselves. They're making their own mountain. They're saying we can save ourselves. We can build this this temple up to to heaven. You see that in the repetition of "Come, let us come, let us." Yeah, it's in that, all self seeking. It's self seeking. Isn't it interesting though? Who else have you heard say in Genesis so far? Come, let us make. Let us make. It's God. So uh-huh. they're they're putting themselves in the place of God. Yeah, they're trying to be like God. And what are they going to say? Right, come, let us make bricks to burn. Let us build ourselves a city up to the heavens. And then here's the key. Let us make a name for ourselves. Mm. So it's alarming and it's shocking and it's humbling because they're actually using, in essence, religious architecture to make a name for themselves. Mm. So it is an act of they're trying to build a temple for worship, but the temple for worship is not to worship God is to make a name for themselves. That's haunting, you know, as being in the church business, that's just something that we can fall prey to, I think, so easily. Isn't it scary how sin, I mean, one of the things sin does is it hijacks good things. Mm -hmm. And then isn't it scary how sin can even hijack something like worship Mm -hmm. where your whole motive and desire for worship is human ambition and self-exaltation yeah. where I'm going to, even I'm going to use worship to make a name for myself <laughs> when the very core value of what worship is, is not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name, be the glory. Mm-hmm. Hallowed be thy name is the first petition of the Lord's prayer for a reason. Mm-hmm. And then here it's almost like they're saying, you know, hallowed be our name, our kingdom come, our will be done. Mm. Another haunting thing for me as I was reflecting upon this first part of the chapter, chapter 11, um, just revealing their lack of spreading out how God has initially commanded them to do. So instead of spreading, they're settling and they're becoming comfortable and they lose sight so quickly of God's desire to spread his kingdom through his people. And so just in conjunction with kind of hijacking worship um, in church, that's just something that we can grow so quickly comfortable in just, just kind of settling, being complacent, not wanting to spread God's word, um, spread his gospel by, by growing, you know, maybe multiplying. So we, one of our original desires in planting Trinity is to be a church planting church, being very involved with church planting because we believe that that's how God spreads his kingdom is through his church, through his people. And we can grow complacent in that. And so that was just something that is kind of haunting to me in this passage. Yeah. If you want to really get at the core sins of Babel, 
you zero in on verse four and it's let us make a name for ourselves and then lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Mm. And that's actually flying into the face of chapter nine, what God commanded Noah's children to do is to be fruitful and multiply and spread across the face of the earth. Mm -hmm. And so they're, they're willfully and intentionally violating that command. But this also can be subtle. It can be difficult. You know, I'm thinking of the missiologist Andrew Walls, who has this beautiful dynamic that the way the church, the way God's kingdom is spread all throughout church history is we're always living in tension of what he calls the indigenizing principle and the pilgrim principle. We're always pilgrims. This is not our home. We're always traveling. We're pilgrim people. Mm -hmm. um, but then we're also, there's an, an indigenizing concept where we're called to, in, in a certain way, settle in and mm -hmm. make our home here and bring the blessings of you know heaven down to earth in this place. And we always live in that tension. So yeah, we always live in that tension that we're called to go and we're called to spread. And then we're also called to stay and to minister to and, so, and to be planted. rooted and play yeah. out. And so I think it is important to note in the story of Babel is that they were seeking to be, again, this great and unified people with this direct connection to heaven. And that was good desires, but they were going about it through the way of human ambition and self-exaltation. Another thing I thought is interesting, did you notice the dynamic between ambitious pride and deep fear? Those two dynamics, let us make a name, self-exaltation, glory. Look at me. I'm valuable. I'm unique. I'm going to make a name. I want people to know my name. But then also this deep fear of lest we be dispersed. Mm -hmm. So I'm afraid of being vulnerable, afraid of being scattered, afraid of being. And so that dynamic of is often there, kind of the, the ambitious self-projection and then also the deep internal insecurity mm -hmm. and fear. And that can be true not just of individuals, but of entire people. I mean, this is true of generations of a people living in a city. So then we have some more descendants. <laughs> There's more people, yep. more names. Yep, more descendants. And then as we go in, this is setting up Abraham's family. So we'll move in next week. But before we get to Abraham, let's just kind of recap and think about, all right, how does the sin of Babel get transformed? So as we look further into this story, Ben, how would you say that God... Re <laughs> are you asking how are we going to get to Jesus from here? How do we get to Jesus? Is that what we're... Oh, I wasn't expecting that. How, do, <laughs> how does our God... <laughs> how does God redeem all things, including that fairy tale <laughs> sound effect? Well, one of the things that we... How this, do we get to Christ, Ben? <laughs> Well, it's not just Christ we get to, we get to the Spirit and the church. Because one of the key themes in the first part of Acts is that at Pentecost, Pentecost is actually the reversal of Babel. And so um, what we see in Acts is how the Spirit is then poured out and then languages that once were confused are now unified. And then the Spirit is the one that then begins to build this true city which we call um, the church, uh, the spirit comes down, the confusion is reversed, the word then spreads over all of the earth, it becomes fruitful and it multiplies, and then this true heavenly city is being built here uh, on the earth. That's so beautiful. I love when great reversals are unpacked. I just think that it's just so exciting. Scripture just comes alive when you point out the great reversals happening. I love yeah, it. Yeah, it is exciting. So here, let's let's point out some of these things and how Pentecost reverses Babel. Yeah. So you kind of got a list of the the Babel, and then I'll comment on how 
Okay. It's reversed at Pentecost. In looking at the story of Babel, they, the people used to use their own initiatives to gather together to make plans apart from God, kind of in defiance of God. Yeah, and in Pentecost, you see the disciples doing the opposite. They gather together to pray, to wait for God to take the initiative, to give them the power they need to accomplish this incredible bu- building project that Jesus has given to build the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And then the human beings sought to climb their way up to God. And then here, God in Pentecost, God clearly comes down. He's poured down on them in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so in the story of Babel, communication was restricted as people could no longer understand each other to plot rebellion. Yes, that's one of the, the results. But then at Pentecost, communication then is expanded. And so now all of a sudden people can understand one another. They can understand the gospel. They can hear it in their own language. And then God comes to judge. And what he does is disperses the people into many nations. And then in Pentecost, God doesn't come to judge. He comes to de- to bless. And though he's dispersing them, just like at Babel, but now he's dispersing them as a new tribe in the church that's going to take the gospel to the many nations. Mm-hmm. And what's so interesting is that God intervenes so that the people with one language and one culture were no longer able to understand each other. And then in Pentecost, it's the reverse. He intervenes so that people now of different ethnic backgrounds and cultures and languages can understand each other. And then the people sought to make a name for themselves through their own achievement. And one of the central themes of Acts is all everything that's done is done in the power of the name. There's only one name on heaven and earth that can bring salvation, and it's the name of the risen Christ. And all of the, the glory and the mighty works are done through him and for him and by him. And the rebellion of the people in the story of Babel results in the disintegration of the human family into different races and nationalities. And then at Pentecost, it results in the establishing of the church from this whole range of people from all nations and all nationalities. So what we see in Acts is this remarkable reversal, this reversal of of Babel. And at Pentecost, when the Spirit is poured out, and now we are a part of this remarkable building project more extraordinary and more glorious than the people who are trying to build the 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 tower of babel mm-hmm. and i love the way augustine frames this in his book um the city of city of god uh, he talks about in essence there's two cities there's uh how you can build babel the city of man and he said the city of man is at its heart it's it's driven by a love for self even to the point of contempt for god Love for self is supreme. Mm. But the way we build the city of God is at its very heart is a love for God, even to the point of contempt for self. But love for God above all things is what's building this heavenly city, this kingdom. Mm. And it's one of the great glories of being a part of the church because the part of the church is very central to that. I love how the church is um, in one of these ways a foretaste of heaven, how God's redeeming this aspect of his church as, you know, worshiping as one, mm-hmm. one nation, one people of God. And so he's bringing together all nations to worship him. And so that's a foretaste of, of course, what we're going to be ultimately doing for eternity as one people worshiping our God. So I just think it's such a beautiful picture of heaven. Yeah, it's a beautiful picture of what heaven, a beautiful picture of what we're, um, the church should be. So what we're trying to work towards in many ways, the city of Babel gives us a blueprint of what 
the heavenly city should be like because mm. um, the reason why they gathered together in the city in the first place was to be a place of refuge. And that's what the heavenly city is. It's a place of refuge for the weak. It's where the weak and the downcast and the downtrodden can can go. It's a place of refuge. And Babel, the earthly city, was compelled by creative technological advancements. They were able to build this because of a new building technique of baking bricks. That um, So they used their creativity. It was just creativity used in a self-serving way. Mm-hmm. But the glory of the heavenly city is that now there's God-honoring development. Your creativity is unleashed and your gifts are unleashed in such a way that it, it honors God and serves others. Mm-hmm. And then you also see that their desire to build a tower to reach to the heavens is a desire for spiritual encounter. And the beauty and the glory of the heavenly city is that we um, have a real true encounter with the living Lord. And the dispersion and confusion of Babel will be fully redeemed at this great gathering when all the people of God will stand together before God's throne. And so when you kind of take seriously the timeline in Genesis chapter 10 of this multi-generational project to build this self-exalting city. Um, But they had to do it year in, year out, day by day, brick by brick. Uh, The way that's reversed in building the heavenly kingdom is a multi-generational, steady, day in, day out project of brick Mm -hmm. by brick. And our bricks that we lay are um, every act, every act that's a fruit of the spirit is laying a brick as we build the heavenly city. Mm-hmm. So it gives meaning and dignity to everything we do, both great and small. Worthy work. All right. So thanks for joining us this week as we looked at the Tower of Babel. And uh, thanks for listening, guys. Have a great week.